more to come. Publishers Weekly's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news. I'm Heidi McDonald, the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. You can find us on all social media at at PWComicsWeek. See, I forgot that. Anyway, you can find us on social media. Let's put it that way. PW Comics World. There you go. I had a flashback to 10 years ago. And... Uh, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do, leave us a comment, because we love it. So today, I am honored to be talking to the Beats Publisher of the Year, Annie Koyama. Welcome, Annie. Thank you. <laughs> Annie, you and I have been talking about doing a podcast for years, and so we're finally uh-huh. doing it. Um, <laughs> well, congratulations on winning Publisher of the Year, uh, which is a survey the Beat does. Uh, to what do you owe your triumph this year? <laughs> I honestly, putting my head down for over 10 years and just doing the best I can, putting out work by new people primarily, and, uh, you know, I believe that there would be an audience, and I've been proven right, and that has been pretty, pretty satisfying. So anyone who's bought a book, anyone who's helped uh, promote our stuff because they liked it, the retailers that continue to take risks by ordering, you know, some pretty uh, edgy stuff sometimes. Um, you know, it's all because of that. Yeah. Well, you know, Koyama Press, uh, just to give the background, uh, you are Toronto-based, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, you publish how many books a year average, would you say? I would say between 11 and 13. Right. So small press. Uh, it's a very small press, but boy, the the quality of books that you put out is uh, insane. I mean, you always have books that rank when our in our uh, PW best books. You've had quite a few, and in our our um, you know critics poll, I know Chlorine Gardens by Kyla Roberts was um, you know one of our best books, and uh, you know so many. I'm I'm just looking at your your webpage right now, and uh, <laughs> you know uh, you've got a new book by. The great Emily Carroll coming out, and uh, you know Michael DeForge and mm-hmm. Connor Williamson and uh, Jane Mai and and Mickey Zakelli. Anyway, it's just an incredible. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but I mean, you've been at this for ten years, eleven years, yeah, and um, obviously working with the best of the best, and um, and I will say beloved. I mean, the name Koyama, Annie Koyama, comes up. Everybody respects. Um, but you announced that this golden era is coming to an end. I did, uh, at early 2021. So this 2019 will be the last year of new books for us, but we'll be selling them until the beginning of 2021, which oddly doesn't seem that far away now. Mm. So, the, so these books that I'm looking at on your, your 2019 schedule are the last books that Koyama Press will publish? Uh, you're looking at the spring ones probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've got a roster for the fall as okay. well. And that, yeah. but, but that will be it. Whoa, that's heavy. So why, why, Annie, why are you leaving us? Uh, all kinds of reasons, some personal stuff. I, I sort of need to get my life back a little bit. Uh, I'm not a spring chicken, and uh, I've got some, you know, aging parent stuff happening. Um, uh, you know, I've been a shitty girlfriend for way too long <laughs> because I – I've been working 27, or 24-7 for many, many years. So I need to cut that back. Uh, it's bittersweet, but there are other things I want to do. Uh, there's a lot of uh, patronage stuff that I've been doing this whole time, some of it quietly, and uh, some of it like uh, supporting people like Kevin Chap and Elle Nichols with the Leyline series, not 
not too quietly anymore. Um, and I've been doing projects with artists for the, you know, since the beginning of KP. They just weren't book projects. So mm-hmm. I want to do more of that because uh, the more I see, I see mid-career artists who really need help uh, and they're not being paid more than emerging artists, which is insane. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, things like that, uh, there's too many rights to or wrongs that are happening in the art world to correct them all. But certainly by choosing people and doing small projects with them like I did in the beginning, uh, and some will have print components to them, uh, they just probably won't have the same kind of distribution. I'm working on the structure for the new venture now. Um, wow. So it, it's just time for a change, but sure. it is bittersweet. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, the, just the books you've put out have been so outstanding and wonderful. And, um, you know, and the way you've conducted yourself doing business has also been a real um, a role model for our whole industry. But... So let's, but let's talk a little bit about that journey because I think the time that you've been in the indie comics business really has been a very transformational time. Um, and I mean, what were your goals when you first started doing this? My goals initially were just to work with, uh, basically illustrators in Toronto and give them a boost. Um, and then the minute I saw John Vermilia, uh, and his work, that that ended. So, you know, of just a few months in, I wanted to work with people not just in the Toronto region. I have always tried to work with a good amount of Canadians because there's so much talent here. And uh, even in our last year, it is primarily Canadian artists. Uh, many of them I have worked with before. Uh, and that's wonderful to get, you know, to work with Emily Carroll. I, I'll be super sad to have missed working with certain people that uh, just didn't come together in time. Uh, you know, we had talked in one case maybe seven years ago, and it just, you know, schedules and mm-hmm. life got in the way. So, you know, there's always going to be that kind of thing. However, maybe I can work with that person in the new venture. Right, right. Now, did you have a background in the arts prior to starting Yama? Yeah. I have. I've always worked in the arts, uh, sort of incidentally. I mean, I, I studied criminology, uh, languages, and a little bit of art history, and I wanted to be a painter, um, and I always studied music. Uh, I wasn't good enough of a painter creatively to continue, so I bumped around and fell into film. I did some graphic design. I did actually do one or two gigs as an illustrator in the early days, and <laughs> that was pretty funny. I just don't have the temperament for that one. <laughs> I don't have the patience for someone telling me that's the wrong green. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, it is. A, it is a talent there for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. That, I, and so, I, I mean, you're coming from kind of the arts background, or you know, a wider background, and you know, certainly in the Toronto, you know, world, cultural world. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I often note that comics and indie comics is such a clubby world. I mean, did you find it welcoming at first or, you know, what was your initial impressions once you got into this crazy world? You know, the advantage of not knowing anything about publishing, not knowing much about alternative comics was that I, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know all the bad stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I found my way and I think... Because of what I was doing, there weren't a lot of people who were really working with uh, new artists and breaking stuff out. So th- I, th- I think that, you know, I made enough noise on social media, which cost me only my time, mm-hmm. that I-, I think 
some of those books early on came to the attention of people who were interested, like Chris Pitzer and the Secret Acres guys were very, very helpful early on. They reached out to me. Um, it, it was nice to be have a little bit of guidance, but I mean, I'm pretty bullheaded and I like to learn stuff on my own. So I should have listened probably more or asked more advice of people who'd been around longer, but it's sort of not like how I want to learn stuff. So, <laughs> Yeah. You know, the, I will say, though, it is kind of the Wild West for comics and, you know, indie comics. I mean, everybody is a rugged individualist and everybody thinks that they, because the system is so broken, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's broken and yet it isn't. You know, I always say that if you went up to, you know, just in terms of the, of comic shops and bookstores and the festival circuit, I would say if you went up to a traditional book publisher and said, hey, how would you like to have a network of 2,000 stores that sell your product almost exclusively and non-returnably? So once they buy the books, that money is all yours. I mean, people would be jumping over, you know, hurdles to get at this business model, right? <laughs> But, um, you know, it still remains problematic for, for indie publishers. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, uh, I mean, how did, you know, how did the business side of it grow? You know, you ended up going with consortium, so you did get bookstore distribution. But I mean, what were, what were some of the biggest hurdles you overcame at first? Well, I'm pretty not, I'm not afraid to talk to strangers. I'm not afraid to, cold call anybody and in those days I would like physically walk around town with my backpack full of you know the first book I had and schlepped it around and I got into every store that I tried to get it into albeit on consignment Uh, I didn't even know you know how to get a distributor in the early years obviously so I did things the hard way and I sold (laughs) stuff directly and uh, you know I gave away a lot of stuff too if you've never heard of somebody sometimes you need a little push um all of the stores that I gave the first book to to sell, they sold it. So yeah. it, 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 when you're in a visual medium and the look of the product you're making is good, it does half of the selling for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if no one's ever heard of the press nor the artist, that's where you have to pick up the slack. So uh, it took me a while to figure out how to get uh, wider audiences. But... You know, in those years leading up to getting on with Consortium, I had help from wonderful people who ran shows, wonderful retailers, not just in Toronto, who reached out to me and knew about our stuff and asked to get the books. Um, and so there was a pretty good network. I had Tony Shenton helping me in the early days right. also. Right. He's the unsung kind of savior of uh, indie comics. Yep. So... Um, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it got frustrating after a while because someone like Michael DeForge would have um, a really uh, rapidly growing audience. And I th- just came to the point where, hmm, you know, people from Russia are asking for his stuff. People in England are asking for his stuff. And it's hard for me to get it over there myself. And so that's where having a proper distributor. Right. So, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say... Like, you're not afraid to publish experimental work, you know? No, I mean, you know, business-wise, some of the books I've chosen to publish, they don't make a lot of sense on paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that. I knew, I can pretty much guess what a book is going to sell. 
I, in the early days, I was using all my own money, so I wasn't bound by, oh, shit, we have to sell, you know, 10,000 of these to break even. Um, I knew there was no way I would be selling 10,000 of, you know, a lot of the stuff I was doing. And, but, you know, who else is going to put out that kind of thing? Eventually, I believe that a lot of those artists will be selling that, uh, albeit no longer with me in a couple years. But, had I not done that early book with them, had I not shown people their work, uh, I don't think that that would be true now. Right. So uh, there's a big gap, and there need to be more people who are, you know, growing uh, brand-new artists. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, I think you were one of the first people to publish Michael DeForge, correct? I was. Yeah, yeah. if not the first. And, um, you know, I mean, he's an artist who obviously from the get-go got you know got a lot of attention just because he was so darn good but um i mean i think now he's like you know so much better than he was when he started and i mean his audience he's definitely found an audience too hasn't he Mm -hmm. he has and he he's still he's not starting anymore but there's lots of stuff that he hasn't done that uh he can write prose. Mm-hmm. I want him to do a prose book one day because I, I know he's got one in him that'll, and it'll be really, really good. Uh, I know there's a lot more that he can do, even though it seems like he's, you know, almost at the peak right now. Yeah. Well, he's still pretty young, all things considered, mm-hmm. in the grander scheme of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the other artists that you supported, you know, Jesse Jacobs and, uh, you know, John Vermillier and, and, you know, a lot of people, but, uh, two stuff is definitely, I don't know. I think challenging, mm-hmm. but I have to say challenging in an approachable way. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, some of them are still challenging to me. I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the audience, I mean, who do you think is the audience for these books, you know, or for indie comics in general? I mean, has, like, it does seem like the audience has definitely grown, uh, and it, I, it seems to me to just be kind of adventurous people who, you know, like indie music and they like indie art as well. I think the bulk of it is that, but I do think that we have been able to bring other people over who might not pick up a collection of, you know, weirdo comics, but they will pick up Eleanor Davis's book about her journey, her mm-hmm. bike journey, uh, that, you know, certain books speak to people on different levels and, and are more accessible with the art. I mean, some of the art is, uh, I've had people come to our tables at shows and pick up a, a book and shake their head. <laughs> it's like, what even is this? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. But you also publish, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, books about cats by John Martz, which are just as adorable and wonderful and main, you know, as mainstream. I mean, you know, there's nobody's not going to like this. Yeah. I wanted to do kids comics initially. I wanted to do kids comics to fill a niche. To have those little kids grow into, you know, be Michael DeForge readers or Jesse Jacob readers and not just read picture books, uh, you know, with someone like Nathan Jerevicious or John Martz, uh, their books were not really like comics per se, um, but, you know, very good and needing to be out there. And, you know, certainly I, I know Martz would have done mm-hmm. well without me. Uh, Nathan's is a little more challenging. The art is like amazing and he's into film and that kind of thing, but I'm not sure you would have seen a book, like a kid's book of his art. Right, right. 
Um, yeah, you also published uh, Rukuda Nashiko's book. Uh, yeah, that was a that, big... Yes, I can't. I can't take a lot of credit. Uh, Annie, she and uh, uh, Graham, her partner in Massive, mm-hmm. they brought that book to me. So that was a no-brainer when I knew what it was about. I didn't. Uh, I was. I wasn't actually aware of um, her before that. I had read about an artist and their trials, you know, in Japan, but I didn't even know her name. And then when Anne brought it, I recognized that it was that woman. So uh, that was great. But yeah, and just for those again, who don't don't know, uh, you know, I think she's probably known as the Vagina Kayak Lady. Yeah. You know, because she she took a mold of her. Uh, intimate parts and then she made a kayak out of that uh which is awesome but then she also got into legal trouble in japan and was i think she was uh, convicted of obscenity and you know became a bit of a cause celeb i mean that book definitely had a lot of you know a lot of people were talking about it was it difficult in any way to you know or did you have to change up at all the way you did you know did things with a book like that that has so much notoriety um, we did press a little bit differently because there was a lot more interest in that. Uh, and, um, you know, because uh, Rokuda Nashiko does not speak English, I don't speak Japanese. Annie, she was like, uh, f- she was really, really, really important with this book because she would serve as literal translator, but she would also translate for interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, bringing Nashiko over for TCAF that year was Right until the last minute, we weren't even sure she would be coming because the um, verdict on her case was hovering right around that time. So, but it worked out in the end. She got here, and uh, it's been a very interesting book. <laughs> it has. That was a very fun TCAF, I, I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit though about the festival circuit. Um, and, uh, you know, we have some really strong shows and we talk about them on the podcast all the time because Calvin and I and, you know, Kate, we love going to them. You know, we love TCAF. I mean, you know, that's the highlight. If I had to give up all my other shows, probably TCAF would be the one show I went to. Um, and, you know, SPX is fantastic and Mocha and, um, you know, we have Brooklyn Comics Graphics. There's Cala now on the West Coast. Now, I know you've become more selective, though, about the shows you go to. I mean, what's mm-hmm. been the evolution about these, you know, about the comics festivals? It's been very practical for us. Um, for quite a long time, the Canadian dollar is really shitty. Mm-hmm. It's very low against yours. So the minute I cross the border, I lose at least 30% of my dollar. Uh, so... Doing the math, sending people to shows, it it's, doesn't really make much sense on paper. The other thing is when you get a large distributor, uh, you will find that, you know, like it or not, uh, most people will order books on Amazon. And right. so they won't buy them at shows. So once you have your books readily available on Amazon and, you know, across, you know, Barnes and Noble, anywhere, any bookstores, you'll sell less at shows, I find. Uh, I bring the artists because I want them to meet, you know, who they're, who is actually buying their book. When we debut a book, I've always liked to do that. Uh, it hasn't always made financial sense, obviously, but it's still a thing I like to do. Um, and certain shows are better for certain books. Mm. Really? How so? Uh, well, you know, there's no kids programming at SPX. So mm-hmm, after right. a while, you know, I can sell a few kids books there, but uh, it doesn't make sense to bring kids authors to that show. Um, 
there is kids programming at TCAF and there's all kinds of, you know, like every aspect of comics is represented in that show. If you go to a show like Cake, which is fantastic and the showrunners are, they're really doing a lot to, uh, you know, run a show properly, in my opinion. Um, you know, it is more people interested in, uh, indie adult stuff, I think. Um, so, you know, I would send a different roster of stuff and people to that show, I think. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. So they, what they have at Cake, we should mention, is in Chicago, uh, and, um, Cala, I mentioned before, is in Los Angeles. Uh, so, I mean, it's really has become, you know, coast to coast in the United States and in Canada as well. I know there's the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival, VanCAF, and, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's indie shows. I mean, there's, there's really a whole circuit that's sprung up. I, I think there's kind of, um, I think there's also, I mean, certainly with SPX and TCAF, uh, which are the ones I go to and MOCA, but, um, I do think there's a kind of a big star making quality though to those shows also. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think it's really mm-hmm. possible for a cartoonist to show there and, um, you know, not, not only their work is great, but I don't know, it's just something about the community that, that, you know, elevates people, I think. It's nice to see the uh, artists there at the shows with their books. I think that, uh, you know, if you are primarily working with emerging people, uh, it's not going to be the same kind of draw as having, you know, Jason at your table or, uh, Emil Ferris at your table. Uh, you know, although right. I have had the pleasure of having, you know, Julia Wirtz and soon Emily Carroll and also Eleanor Davis, uh, people like that, uh, will draw a different crowd and a larger crowd, obviously, than, uh, a new author that no one's heard of. Right. Now, you've also published a lot of, uh, some Canadian legends though as well. I know you did a book by Maurice Velicoup, right? Yeah, we did an early floppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a huge fan of his. In fact, the first print I ever bought when I could afford to buy something, and it was $25 or something like that, was Maurice's, one of his illustrations. And so when I met him at TCAF, I was that drooling fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And he was so incredibly sweet. He is incredibly sweet and wonderful and uh, witty. And he's everything that I thought he would be in person. And so I loved him. And I, I do love him. And I can't wait to see his huge tome that's probably coming out in a few more years. Oh, yeah. I think from Pantheon. Oh, right, right, yeah. Well, his work is also, I mean, it's, it's queer themed and, you know, it's kind of got this old school illustration. I mean, he is, he has been on the Canadian comic scene for, you know, he is a veteran or a, you know, Hall of Famer, as we like to say. Yep. Um, and, you know, his stuff is amazing. Uh, I loved the fact, though, that last year you put out the book Somnambulance by Fiona Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's another kind of local legend, but she's also kind of a little punk rock, you know. She is. I mean, that book contains stuff over the course of 30 years. Uh, Fiona and I had talked over the course of maybe four or five years about doing an anthology together, but every time we came up with a theme or whatever, someone would come up with something similar, and I finally just said, well, let's just do why don't we just do a book of your comics? And she said, okay. <laughs> she's extremely humble and uh, she's an incredible supporter of the uh, Toronto, particularly the Toronto art scene. Mm-hmm. She will go to every zine show and she'll buy as much as she can from uh, all the new zine makers. She teaches at OCAD U here. Uh, she's a wonderful, supportive person and 
it, it was sad to me. I would go to a zine show and she would be walking around and I saw Mark Bell standing over in a corner and I realized that all of these people selling zines had no clue right. who these two people were. And I mean, <laughs> that needed to be fixed. Right, right. And I mean, of course, I, I mean, I've been a fan of hers for a long time because she was, you know, another one who was sort of, you know, back in the day, and you know, to be honest, there weren't that many women doing it, uh, and Fiona definitely stood out just for that. But also her incredible, you know, artistry and her presence. She's such a, she's such a great person. But so I didn't realize though until, like, she did events last year for the book, and I went to some of them and heard her speak and everything. But I didn't realize how much of a of a local, like, you know, legend she was because she did all these murals, right? Mm-hmm. These, yeah, for sure. Yep. I had been in bars in the 80s and seen her work. Uh, I didn't know who she was at that time, but I mean, I'm not the only one. Everyone knows those murals from Sneaky D's or mm-hmm. her artwork from around town. And the same with Michael Como, who I published the same year. Right, yes. Because he's known, you know, as a major poster artist. And um, I used to work in the uh, LGBTQ village uh, when I was in film and I would see his posters for this event that continued, you know, again in the 80s. I think right. it was like the late 80s I first saw his stuff on, uh, you know, lamp posts. So I remembered. And then I go to like a venue and the bathroom was all wallpapered <laughs> with Como stuff. And it's really memorable. It is. Yeah. It must be incredibly gratifying to be able to, to bring these kind of artists to another audience because you know it is so experiential when you see these this kind of street art you know and it can be so powerful and um Mm -hmm. you know but it's of the moment too so kind of capturing it yeah Mm -hmm. um let's talk a little i i you and i talked when i was doing a big article uh for slate about the comics and animation crossover and Mm -hmm. uh you know for a while there like it seems like your artist's roster was like you know a direct conduit (laughs) to Mm -hmm. to uh to cartoon network because they were just hiring them you know they're like oh Kayama got him well let's get him doing backgrounds on steven universe you know um is that but now i kind of feel like that you know adventure time has ended steven universe is ending so mm-hmm. is this era still going on, or has it slowed down? I think um, it is still going on. I think it might have slowed down. I mean, a little bit. Some of those people are pitching their own shows. Uh, you know, Steve Wolfhard moved back there to work on something. Um, you know, some of them still work remotely. Um, you know, Sue Kim's still working on a show there. Uh, John Vermillion. There are a lot of them who are still, you know, they go from show to show. However, Depending on what show it is, it's like, um, you know, like Michael DeForge was on Adventure Time, but then the next batch of shows that came up, I think he might not have been quite right for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone will pick him up again, but I, right now he's not on a show. Um, Jesse Jacobs went to do a, a video game. You know, some of them have branched out to do other things that are not comics and not animation per se. So, right. but they had those opportunities, I think, because of those, all of those gigs. Right, right. Well, there's certainly, I mean, you know, we have talked about this and I've talked about it with other people. It does seem like there was this kind of moment, like, even like when you were starting Koyama Press, where there was this kind of explosion 
in the indie comics world and it certainly influenced a lot of indie animators as well and you know then they got jobs at at um you know Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and everywhere and uh I guess it's a little bit like you know Jack Kirby in, in his era you know it might be like some you know George Lucas or Steven Spielberg knew how great Jack Kirby was and you know eventually these people would be like hey why don't you do storyboards and um you know so it's kind of like people were wowed by their work and then they're like let's hire them mm-hmm. do you think that this has been a good influence on comics I, you know, I'm sad that it took those people out of, you know, when you're working in animation like any film gig, the hours are long and you don't have much time to do your own work. So, yeah, was I sad not to see, you know, the next Steve Wolfhard book because he disappeared into the Adventure Time, you know, hole for many years? Yeah, for sure I was. But on the other hand, uh, to see Alex Schubert go from Blobby Boys into, you know, several shows and be paid properly that that's mm-hmm. the thing about comics it's never going to pay properly and uh, none of us can fix that even though we try and be as fair as we can um the market is always going to determine that for us uh, so to see people ideally have a little bit of time to still work on their own comics but work on animation things as their day job or part-time job and have the money to not worry about paying their rent I can't argue with that. Right, right. Well, Annie, you just said something so sad. Uh, uh, you just said comics are never going to pay properly. Um, well, in, uh, perhaps I should say the in the corner that I'm in, the mm-hmm. small press comics. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I can't imagine there's one uh, publisher amongst my peers who would not like to pay way higher advances. But uh, we'd all go out of business if you know. We just ignored getting our printing costs back alone, let alone, you know, covering our overhead. Once you have staff, you can't be screwing around as much and taking as many risks. I mean, that was a big change for me. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, go out there and be a cowboy as much as I was uh, before I hired Ed Kinerva because now I'm responsible for Ed and his right. salary and, you know, he needs stability too. Uh, I rely on him and I can't do my job uh without him now so uh you know the risk-taking thing we all face that and Uh so people have often said to me well you know why don't other people take these risks and i said a because they're not insane and b (laughs) 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 because there's a bottom line that you know if you're in traditional publishing you have to adhere to that and uh if you want to see all of us stick around we have to sell a certain amount of books um with you know, margins being cut into, um, you know, with online selling places, it, it gets harder and harder. So you, I still maintain that most of us small pressers are doing it first for love, and we work our asses off doing it, but it's hard. But yeah. it's so worthwhile, particularly when you are able to launch somebody who, you know, like a Kyla Roberts, so many people know about her work now. Right. Exactly. Yeah, she's phenomenal. I love her work. And, you know, uh, Kyla Roberts of Chlorine Gardens and Sunburning and, you know, her personal story is, is just gotten so much more heartrending also. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and her work coming out is, um, you know, been so good. Now, I, but, so I'll just, I'll ask you, I mean, are, are her books successful? I mean, do they sell what you would consider well or? 
Yes, they do. And what I like, I've had people say to my face, I hate autobiocomics, <laughs> but I really like hers. Hers are just hilarious. And what is interesting is a lot of men buy them, a lot of dads buy them. Her, uh, if you haven't read her books, uh, they're very much about her life and she has a child and a dog and a cartoonist teacher husband uh, who is wonderful. Um, but I, I guess, I had thought when I thought about who her market would be would be mostly mums, right? Uh, you know, people who are about to have kids and try and negotiate life with all those things. I'm surprised by the amount of you know men who buy them. That's really interesting. I mean, I think part of it is just that she's so honest, you mm. know. And I think you kind of do really understand where she's coming from when you read it, you know. She's so hilarious. Yeah, and I mean, she is like. I think if you were, uh, you know, what, what do women want? And, you know, men, uh, the, the stereotype and the reality <laughs> being that they don't understand what women want at all. I guess I could see how reading Kyler's stuff would kind of make things, you know, humorous, but also very insightful. So. Insightful and she's not afraid to say stuff that everyone's thinking, yes. but no one is going to say. So, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah, That's why it's so endearing. Yeah, she is an amazing artist, and, um, you know, I'm hoping that she can continue to do, uh, you know, continue to do her work. I mean, one of, you know, one of my favorites, you talk about taking a chance, is, uh, you know, Connor Williamson, who's mm-hmm. somebody who I met when he was in school, and, uh, you know, he's a really talented, really unusual. <laughs> mm-hmm. But even Antigone or Antigone, however you say uh-huh. it, uh, uh-huh. you know, that book seemed to, but it seemed pretty challenging, but, uh, you know, that book seemed to find an audience as well. I think, I think he's brilliant. I think, uh, a lot of people won't understand him. I feel like he, like Michael DeForge will, he could step to the side and do something that wasn't comics and he'll be brilliant at that also. He has so many creative bones in him. I, I just, I cannot wait to see what he does in the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, it's it's uh it's wonderful hearing you talk about your artists because I know that there is such a strong bond um you know between you and them just, you know, as a publisher, as creators. So, mm-hmm. but but let me go back one minute because you are also, I have to say, one of the better business people that I know in comics because you did make your own money independently before you uh-huh. got into comics and I've said it a billion times. How do you make a small fortune in comics? You start with a large fortune. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in talking about uh, you know, there being such a pay disparity. I mean, do you think there are, you know, what can be done? What Are there things we can change to make this better? Uh, the only thing I can see that would really have the biggest effect uh, is making the market bigger. I don't know how to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there are people who've been around way longer than me, you could ask, and, you know, Tom and Peggy and Gary Groth and Eric, they may have better answers for you. I I can't see fixing this unless the market gets bigger. If the market doesn't get bigger, you're only going to ever be selling a certain amount of books uh, with paper costs going up and printing, uh, particularly if you choose to print locally, really particularly if you choose to print locally and ethically and, you know, uh, have the proper recycled paper that a lot of people would like. It costs a fortune. That The unit cost of that book is so high that uh, you're going to have to sell 
tons and tons of them to pay off the printing costs alone, never mind paying the artist, never mind paying your overhead or having any profit. Right. Uh, well, I don't know how to change it. You know, you can print in China or overseas as lots of us do. I, I do some in Canada and uh, a lot in China. I would still rather print 10 books than be able to print four books because of the cost of printing. Mm-hmm. Um, the printing costs, I guess my point is they're not coming down. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, I think, uh, what is, I, there's no, uh, let me start this question again. I have so many thoughts rushing through my head, I can't get them all out. But, uh, obviously the fact that so many of your books, in fact all of them, are beautiful objects in and of themselves. I mean, you know, if you were to look around my apartment right now, it really does look like the back room of a bookstore because I have so many <laughs> books. And then when I try to get rid of them, I, it's, it's, you know, I need Marie Kondo. A lot of things mm-hmm. give me joy and your <laughs> books give me joy to hold in their hands, to hold in my hands. But, um, you know, is there a digital component to this? I mean, has that, is there, you know, is that a revenue stream, do you think, for what It was doing? a very, very small one for us. Uh, I resisted for a long, long time because I, I didn't want to go with Amazon. I, you know, I've said it publicly before. Uh, I, I did cave after a few years because I thought, what if I am denying the artists a small revenue stream because I'm being stubborn about this? Uh, you know, they may not all feel as strongly about Amazon as I do. And so I did try it. Um, it didn't it didn't return a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't worth it. Uh, at, and, you know, for me to be able to sleep at night and it not bringing in a lot of money for the artists, uh, you know, that was a no brainer right, to right. shut it down. However, I'm sure that if you had like a lot of titles, uh, they were, you know, like YA books, I'm sure some companies are doing really well with that. So I'm only speaking specifically to the kinds of books I do and our experience with it. Right, right. Well, there, like I said, there is such a physical component to them um, mm-hmm. that that it's hard to hard to imagine any other way. I mean, I know Michael DeForge. You know, I I follow him on Patreon and I give him three dollars a month. And he gives me a comic, and I mean, that's awesome, you know, and I read them digitally. But then when I get the book collection, I like that much better, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just like how I am. Um, another another aspect. Now, you actually worked in film before mm-hmm. you came to comics. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now you can't, you know, turn on the TV or, in my case, in New York, you know, walk past a a kiosk or see a taxi go by without seeing an ad for some kind of comics-based, um, you know, TV show and streaming and all of that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's just, you know, it's it's taken mm-hmm. over the media. I mean, there's mm-hmm. really kind of like, you know, true crime, reality shows, and then comic book stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is this, you know, would there ever, have you ever been approached, you know, to let's turn Antigone into a TV show or something like that? Oh yes, uh, several of, uh, because these deals are still happening and they're really, uh, I, I've certainly served as a go-between to set up, um, this kind of thing for Jesse Jacobs, for Michael, uh, for several other, I guess it's not really for me to say which sure, ones sure, I guess. Of course for, no. You'll, you'll find out when they, Whoa, you know, scoop. When they Hello, scoop. 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there's been a lot of interest for film stuff, yeah, and I hope some of them happen. Now, do you? I, I think a lot of us, and we've talked about it on the podcast many, many times, but uh, a lot of people were shocked by the success of the end of the bleeping world, uh, which was produced by the you know in England, where they really know how to do TV. But you know, when they took this really gritty. Uh, mini comic by Chuck Forsman and made it into a Netflix miniseries that was one of their most watched of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that did that impact uh, at all on, on what you're talking about? Uh, no, because there had been a lot of interest in some of our books. Uh, Wendy is one that has had a ton of interest. Ah. Well, Scott's book, uh-huh. uh, he's being very um, choosy about who he chooses to go with. But uh, that had all happened before Chuck's thing. I mean, Chuck's story is a good story. I mean, they did an amazing job with that series. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. But I have to say, having worked in film, having been on the opposite part, having optioned books and uh, previous other material for films back in the day, uh, they don't always <laughs> – It's. I'm going to say it's pretty rare that they go that well. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of bad stories about, you know, how poorly stuff has been done, how the artist hasn't been happy with it. Uh, at some point you give up, you know, you're not invited into the creative process. I mean, that's right. how film goes. It's a, it's a team effort, but it isn't really a team effort if you're the original creator of the work. So I think Chuck lucked into a really good situation there whereby it really seems as if they included him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not super usual. <laughs> right. In the right. So, uh, yeah. I, I will say I, I have found that, you know, having covered, been covering this for a long time myself, that uh, they, film studios, producers have learned that, um, you know, an angry creator you know, now with social media, you know, there can be a pretty big backlash. So they are a little bit more motivated. Like, if they don't allow them onto the set to, you know, treat them with respect, at least they give them enough hush money to shut them up. So, you know, in more cases, certainly not in all cases, but, uh, you know, in more cases, I, I, I do see some more positive developments. I mean, do you think, I mean, is that healthy? I mean, is this like a positive development or, you know, is this the end of the, the true spirit of indie comics? No, you can always say no. If you don't want your, uh, you know, Julia Wirtz went before my time with her, mm-hmm. uh, had, you know, was pretty far on in the, in the process and then she just decided she didn't want it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't, I think that Walter Scott being very choosy about who he goes with and some pretty big people have come to him uh, is not a bad thing. It's your property. You want to see it done really well, but you have only so much control over that. So uh, particularly when the character in both cases is based on you, uh, I think you need to be even more careful about, you know, who you give it to. Right. Um, anybody can get a shopping agreement for like one dollar now to, you know, develop in quotes your uh your project and, and take it away for a year or two to try and find financing. Uh it you know, of all of those shopping agreements, how many of them come to fruition? Not a lot. Mm-hmm. But um I don't see it as a bad thing. I mean uh, you know, for people who are doing comics, to me, why should they not Unless they're, you know, killing people in the process, why shouldn't they have every opportunity to branch out to any other kind of medium that might pay them a little more for their, you know, hard work? Uh, you know that 
their hourly fee for drawing those pages in any of those books was so, you know, insultingly low. Yeah. Uh, I just see it, if there's an income stream for them in some other medium, why not? Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, in some cases... I think it is additive, and you know I don't think he'll blame. I don't think he'll be upset if I name names in this one. But you know I remember when uh, Fanographics was began publishing Peanuts, and I think I heard like I don't know. I think it was even in a press release or something. And you know one of the publishers. Well, now I can't remember. It might have been Seth or it might have been Eric Reynolds, which is a huge difference. So I should remember. But somebody's like you know, and now you know, like we have the pure form and not those cartoons. And I'm like, well, you know. The cartoons are pretty amazing. Like, <laughs> those first peanut specials are among the foundational, you know, holiday experiences of generations of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if all we had was the Lucy and Linus theme by Vince Guaraldi, I would think it would be justified, you know? And, and I think Charles Schultz was fine with them, and it wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> No, I think there's room for all of that. There's room for good documentaries. I mean, I've got, you know, back to sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I think about the other projects I want to do. And I would love to make a documentary about certain people in our business and, uh, you know, their journey up through the world. It would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, Well, I hope we get to see a little bit more of that. I I think we're, you know, I do think – you know, cartoonists are ascending in the world. I think they are, you know, I mean, obviously it's because of social media and, and the internet, you know, that, that everybody's closer to everyone now, but I, I, it is giving people, you know, a lot of cartoonists are pretty shy. They spend all their time sitting behind the desk drawing and, um, but you know, they're beginning to be recognized, I think, more. And, um, you know, even somebody like Mickey Zakelli, whose name, I, mm-hmm. I hope that's how you say her name. Zakelli. Zakelli. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was, I was, everybody calls her Mickey, but I mean, you know, she's such a great creator and such a great, yes. such a great personality, you know, and mm-hmm. even seeing her to, you know, blossom in a, in, you know, on the indie comic circuit is really exciting, you know, to mm-hmm. see her develop. You know, but I, we're running out of time, but just a quick question. You actually have published two, to me, of the contemporary greats, which is Eleanor Davis and, um, and then Emily Carroll. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they are, uh, they're, they're in it to win it, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're both amazing, uh, people. Aside from their work, I mean, I know their, who they are informs their work, uh, but what a privilege to work with both of them. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would imagine that those books, you know, would have also, you know, certain pragmatically, certain, um, you know, sales expectation as well. For sure. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, just to, to end on a, on a cool plug here, you do have uh, "When I Arrive at the Castle" by Emily Carroll coming out this year. Uh, now, is this new horror comics by her, or what is the content of yes, this? Yes, it is, and it's quite a personal one to her. I'm sure she'll speak about it in interviews. Uh-huh. I don't want to paraphrase her at this point, but uh, since the book's not out yet, but um, yeah, it it's pretty fantastic. Wow. <laughs> well, definitely. Annie, if this has got to be your final tour around, I Uh think you're going to go out on a high note. Uh, (laughs) But we wouldn't have expected anything different from you. So, um, I sure hope so. Thank you. uh, Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And, you You know, we'll we'll see you at TCAF. um, For sure. All right. And so until then, there will be more to come.